Well, I want to welcome you today to the continuation of our Where is God When I message series. Over these last couple weeks at South Bay, we've been addressing some very real questions that we all wrestle with at times. Questions like, where is God when I have doubts? Doubts about His goodness, doubts about His, his presence in my life. Where is God when I struggle through some of the deepest moments of life? Last week we looked at where is God when I mess up, when I blow it, when I make mistakes and I do things that I know that I should not do. And today we're addressing the very real subject that many of us struggle with at times, the subject of fear. And more importantly than where is God when I'm afraid, but how does God help me overcome my fears? How does God help me overcome fears that seem so real in my life? And for many of us, fear is built in at a young age. It starts maybe with a mom or a dad or a grandma or brother or sister, and they try to protect us or maybe control us, and they tell us the things that we need to be worried or concerned about, and that fear can affect us over the course of time. I remember as a young child, we would go to the beach, and every time we would go to the beach, my mom would give me this really long speech before I went out into the water, and she would inform me of everything that lurked beneath the surface of the waters. Say, there are jellyfish in the water. And what they want to do is they want to entangle you with their legs and put poison into your system. And it's going to shoot down to your vine. And did you know that the most ferocious animal or ferocious, is it an animal? Yeah, it is an animal, of the ocean is a shark with hundreds and hundreds of teeth. And they just love to prey on small children. And they want to come up and eat your flesh. And all that will be left are your bones and there's this undertow that if you're not careful will sweep you out to the ocean and if all three of these combine at the perfect moment, you'll be caught by a jellyfish. He'll hold you and a shark will come and eat your flesh and your bones will end up on some beach in Japan. <laughs> now go have fun. And to this day, I don't go past my knees in the water if I can't see the bottom. And other fears are hideous and ridiculous. The later we go in life, we realize that my, my cousins who lived with us growing up, and I have to clarify that I was like six or seven when this happened, not a teenager. And they told me one time, they said, there's a man that lives underneath the stairs in our house. And down in my parents' basement, there was this long row of mirrors. So every time I would go down into the basement, my mom would send me down there for her laundry or something else, I'd run down in the basement and I would sprint across that, that cold, dark basement and get to the light as fast as I could. And I promise you, dozens of times, I saw that man running across the basement with me on the other side. And I'd flip that light switch on and I'd get what my mom wanted me to get and I'd get back upstairs as quick as I could. Now, later on, my cousin informed me that the reason that he told me there was a man under the stairs was to keep me out of his bedroom so I wouldn't go in there. And some of the fears that we struggle with, we realize how ridiculous they are later in life. There are, there are a lot of funny fears. I looked up on phobialist.com some of those fears. There's, you know, there's what is called cockophobia, which is the fear of ugliness. I remember in high school, I used to have these dreams that I woke up in the middle of the dream and I had a unibrow in my, in my face. And, uh, and then I'd wake up and there's no unibrow there. If you have a unibrow, there's hope for you. Just put wax right in the middle there. You can be married, I promise you. And there are other fear, uh, uh, fears that are kind of interesting. Ecclesophobia is the fear of church, and uh, maybe you struggle with that, and this is your first time overcoming that fear, and I'm just making it a lot worse today. And there, there is a, another fear I think is kind of funny called hierophobia, which is the fear of pastors. I can see it in your eyes sometimes. I go to shake your hand. And, don't shake my hand. So fears sometimes are kind of ridiculous, but there are some fears that are very real to us. For many of us, it's the fear of the loss of a loved one that we care about deeply. 
Uh, others of us, it's the fear that we'd lose our job and we'd be without money. Or maybe it's the fear that you would mess up your life. Maybe it's a dad or a granddad or a mom or a grandparent that they, they wrecked everything. They, they, they were addicted to multiple drugs and now you're trying to change the lineage and you worry about blowing it. And you love your life and you love your spouse and you love your kids, but you don't want to blow it. There's that fear there. Others of us, maybe, maybe it's the fear for those of you who are single in the room that you might marry the wrong person. You've seen so many marriages, you're like, uh, 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 I don't want that right there. And so every time you get a little bit closer to somebody and you start to get to know them a little bit more, there's that fear of commitment that comes in. Others, it's maybe the fear of rejection. You've been rejected in the past before and you fear when you start to love somebody that you might be rejected by them. Others of you who are approaching retirement, I don't want to get to retirement and not have enough money in my bank account. And there's this fear that somehow I'd end up and I wouldn't have enough resources to survive on. These fears are very real for us. And many of these things are very obvious that we should give some level of concern to them. We should care about our marriage. We should care about our job. We should care about our finances. So the question then becomes, how do I live with this tension of all of these issues that are very real? When a doctor comes in and gives me a cancer report or tells me I have a disease, how do I in the middle of that walk through? And the Bible says over and over and over again, do not be afraid, do not have fear, hundreds of times. So with real concerns, real life issues, problems that we're facing, how do I walk through that and overcome the fear that stands between me and the person that God's created me to be? That's the question we're going to address today. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Daniel chapter 3. And we're going to look at a story about three guys named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Somebody's parent was having a bad day when they named their kids that. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And this is going to be a great story of how do you respond to fear? How do you deal with real life issues? How do you deal when you get that report, that cancer report? How, how do you deal with the fact that your bank account, there's not enough money in it and bills continue to come? How do you deal with real life fear? I want to give you a verse. It's a memory verse. I want to challenge you to memorize this this week. It says this. So do not fear. Isaiah 41 verse 10. It starts off and I want to ask you to read it with me. It says this on the screens. So do not fear for I am with you. Everybody who's awake this morning and believes it. Let's say it together. So do not fear for I am with you. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. My hope is that at the end of this message that we'd have confidence to face our greatest fears with these kinds of words that our God is for us, that there's a creator who loves us, who can strengthen us in the midst of our fear. Daniel chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 16 through 28, and I'm going to journey us through this story. I want to give you the context of what's going on. The nation of Israel has rebelled against God again and again and again and again. In fact, many times, God would discipline the nation of Israel, who were his chosen people in the Old Testament, that he was trying to bless so that he could bless the whole world and the whole world would know him. And the chosen people of God, the Israelites, many times would get arrogant, they'd worship foreign gods. And this one time, the Israelites had been so rebellious towards God, they had rejected him over and over and over again, and finally God was like, I'm done. I am so fed up with your rebellion and your worship of foreign gods that I'm going to send you away from Israel to a foreign land called Babylon. So the Babylonians, they come in, they take a group of people from Israel back to Babylon. Now these folks that the king 
of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar takes back with him are the best and the brightest of Israel. They're the smartest people with MBAs from Stanford and places like Harvard, work at companies like Google and Facebook and Apple. They're the best and the brightest. They're software engineers, they're lawyers. And they come in, they take all these people to Babylon and there are these four men, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who show up in this book called Daniel. It starts off in Nebuchadnezzar, the evil, wicked king of Babylon has a dream. And nobody can interpret the dream. And finally, he's like, I'm, I'm just going to start killing people. Somebody can't interpret my dream, I'm going to start killing people. So everybody's like, I'll make something up if you want me to. And this one guy, Daniel, steps up and he says... Let me interpret the dream. Give me a couple days to pray about it. I'll come back. He comes back with an interpretation for Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And Nebuchadnezzar is so impacted that he says back to Daniel, all right, I'm going to give you authority in my kingdom and you can appoint a few of your buddies to also be a part. So Daniel chooses Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the four of these guys, no kidding, are Israelites from a foreign nation in Babylon running the country. That's such an odd scenario. This foreign, wicked king with all these Israelites. And now, King Nebuchadnezzar sitting out smoking his pipe one day and gets this grand idea. This is his idea. I'm going to make a 90-foot gold statue. Anybody ever had that happen? Like I'm back on my back porch and surfing the internet. 90-foot gold statue. That's what I'm going to do today. So he makes the gold statue, 90 feet tall by 9 feet wide. Places it in this big plain called the Plain of Dura so that everybody can see it. So for miles and miles and miles, then the, everybody in Babylon can see this big golden statue. And so he decides that he's going to have a ceremony. Where all the greatest musicians are going to come out with their flutes and guitars and drums, and they're going to bang and sing and holler and shoot, they're, you know, sing. And, and all of a sudden he says, when the music starts, everybody in Babylon should bow down and worship this 90-foot gold statue. And there's this dilemma. There's this dilemma for the Israelites who are in Babylon. Because, in fact, in the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, God tells the Israelites very specifically, do not bow down and worship other gods. You should have no other gods before me. So you can imagine the tension that the Israelites feel at this moment. To make matters worse, here's what Nebuchadnezzar decides he's going to do. Sounds like a scene from Hunger Games. He decides that anybody who will not fall down and worship him, he's going to, or not fall down and worship the idol, he's going to throw into a fiery furnace. So imagine being an Israelite in Babylon at this time. You know that the Old Testament or the Ten Commandments say, I should not worship another god. But here, I have to make a decision. This fear becomes very real. If I do not fall down and worship this foreign god, I'm going to be thrown into a fiery furnace Yet if I do, I have to disobey my God who's created me and loves me. And it's the same tension that we feel often with our fears. That, that we know that there's something that God desires for us to do. Maybe it's your finances and it's honoring God and putting him first in your finances. But I got page, a paycheck that does not cover the bills. How do I deal with this? How do I deal with this reality? Maybe again, it's going back to what I said previously. It's that, it's that sickness that that you've gotten news about. Maybe it's not you, but it's a spouse, or it's a, it's a mom, or it's a sister. It's somebody that you love so dearly, and it's so easy to allow that fear to begin to consume our minds and our hearts and our thoughts. And the question is, how will I respond? 
But in reality, the issue is not just for the Israelites, will they bow down and worship this foreign god? The reality and the issue is what's going on in their hearts and ultimately the question, who will be in control of my life? Who's the one who will dictate the decisions of my life? Will I let my fear control and guide my life or will I let my faith in God ultimately dictate my decisions? Who's going to be in control? And here's what happens. Whenever there's a fear in our life, it magnifies a problem and it minimizes or shrinks the size and capacity of God. I think about it like this. My wife, Stacy, I'm pretty sure she has a cell phone most days. Some days, though, most days, she puts that cell phone on silent and places it in her purse and it's at the bottom of her purse. Women, purses are amazing to me, the things that come out of them. I don't even venture to try to find things in my wife's purse. I'm like, you find it. And so sometimes I'll call Stacy, and the first time I call her, I'm just wanting to get in touch with her about something, and no answer. So I call her five minutes later, no answer. Five minutes later, no answer. Then I start to think, I wonder what's going on. Where is she? Why is she not answering her phone? I call her again, and then I call her again and again and again and again. Sometimes I'm a lot better than I used to be, but sometimes I'd call her seven, eight times, and then I start to play out in my mind what might be going on here. Like, I, I wonder, wonder what happened. I wonder, I wonder if she was in a car accident. I wonder what part of the car was hit. Was it the right side or the left side? I got one kid on one side and the other kid on the other side. Which kid do I want to die? What, like, I'm, I'm just kidding. I don't have that thought, but, but I'm like, I wonder if she's been airlifted, if she's been put in a helicopter. I wonder what hospital they've taken her to. I wonder what's going to happen if she dies. How am I going to pay for a funeral? What am I going to do if the boys are alive and she's dead and I've got to raise the boys? Uh, Am I going to be single for the rest of my life? Oh yeah, surely I'm going to be single for the rest of my life. Nobody is crazy enough aside from my wife to marry me. What am I going to do? And the problem continues to build and build and build and build. I tell you, your pastor is crazy. Sometimes I have these thoughts, and maybe you've had them before, and fear magnifies, it stretches a problem, and it minimizes God. And most of the time, a few minutes later, Stacy calls me back, and she's like, hey, babe, I'm grocery shopping. You need anything? I'm like, oh, I feel so much better now. And fear magnifies, and it, it magnifies the problem, and it shrinks the size of God in our lives. So verse number seven, these guys, they bow down, Scripture says, and worship this foreign God or this golden statue. Verse 7, it says, people and nations of men, every language fell down and they worshiped the image of gold that the king had set up. So they caved to their fear. They worship a foreign god, an image of gold that is just merely a statue. And it's the same struggle that you and I walk through. Will we bow or let our fear control us or we stand for our faith? And here's what happens. There's three guys. Guess who they are? Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego who don't bow the knee to a foreign god. And somehow, I have no idea, that, you know, the Bible is so ironic at times, but the astrologers find Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego not bowing down. Astrologers were weird in the Old Testament and astrologers are weird today. Don't let your palm tell you your future, man. And, and here these astrologers find Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, bring them back to King Nebuchadnezzar, and there's going to be another opportunity for them to make a decision. Will they fall in worship to this idol, or will they stand up for their faith in God again? And here in this moment, in verse 14, the king is so angry, and he comes back and he says, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you don't serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I've set up? Is it true? And when you hear the sound of music, I'm going to give you another opportunity, guys. Here's one more chance. 
for you to not be thrown into the fiery furnace. Here's one more chance for your fear to, to, to ultimately come up again. And he says this, if you're ready to worship, great. But if not, you'll be immediately thrown into a blazing furnace. The fear comes back up again for them, and the question is, how will they respond? And I believe that Nebuchadnezzar says something that's pretty stupid right now. He says, I think the dumbest thing he says in his whole life, all throughout Scripture, any account. Maybe he did some dumber things that aren't account accounted for in Scripture, but listen to what he says. He looks back at these guys, and he says, if you don't fall down and worship me, then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? No, you don't. No, you don't. Don't pick a fight with the guy that created the universe in six days with a spoken word. I mean, we see MMA fights, right? I mean, there was a big one last night, I think. And, uh, you know, I look at those guys and I'm like, dude, if, if I saw that guy walking down the street at me, I'd be like, bro, can I just have a hug from you? I mean, I'm not going to pick a fight with an MMA fighter, let alone the creator of the freaking universe. The guy says, who in the world... What God will be able to save you from my power? I'm the greatest. I'm the most powerful. Like Muhammad Ali, I'm the greatest king in the universe. He picks a fight with God. And what happens is now the story changes. It pivots. It's no longer Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego against Nebuchadnezzar. It's who? It's God against Nebuchadnezzar. It's the creator of the universe against this wicked king. Who's going to win that fight? I mean, no question about that. But watch how these three men respond in verse 16. I love their boldness. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar. I could just imagine the tone of their voice. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar. We do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. The fist fight is not you and uh, you against us. It's you against God. We're not going to... We're not going to defend ourselves in this situation. And then they say this, this very powerful statement. Our God, who we serve, is able to save us from the furnace. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. Do you see their confidence in God? I think it's interesting how they say two things here. They say he's able He's capable, he's powerful, he's mighty, he's sovereign, he's holy, he's able. You throw our bodies into that fiery furnace, you put some strings and ropes around us, my God is able to rescue me from this fear that is facing me in this moment. It's the same, same, same scenario for us in the 21st century. There's no circumstance, there's no scenario, there's no cancer there's no marriage that's on the rocks. There's no life that is beyond hope. There's no situation and circumstance that my God is not able to deliver you from. There's no trial that you're walking through today that is too big for the strength of his mighty biceps. Scripture talks about the strength of his arm and the, the voice that called out every star. And the scripture says that he knows every single star by name. He looks at the skies. He's Bob. Joe, every single one of them, billions and billions of stars and galaxies, the, the scripture says, my God is able to rescue me from this fiery furnace. And then I love this. He says, but, a lot of buts in the Bible, but even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, 
that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. This is the point of the story. This is the climax for Nebuchadnezzar and these three men. And the question was, how would they respond in the face of their fear? And I think that there's something happening in this story that is so beautiful, that is so pertinent for us today. And it's this. See, there are some decisions that you and I make that we will stand accountable before God for. Some decisions that you and I make, we will stand accountable before God for. And there are other decisions that God ultimately is responsible for the outcome, or there are other situations and circumstances that God is accountable for the outcome. In fact, for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they understood if they were thrown into the fiery furnace, regardless of what happened, burned to death, or God rescues them physically, God ultimately would hold them accountable in that moment for their response to this golden idol that had been set up. They are accountable for their choice and their response in this moment. But at the same time, God's responsible for the outcome. God's responsible for whether or not they burn to death or he rescues them. There's this bifurcation or separation in their minds for that which they're accountable for and that which God is responsible for. And I think that an easy way to say it is like this. There's one box that ultimately is God's box. God's responsible for it. God's in charge of it. And there's another box that I'm ultimately accountable for. It's my box. It's the box of decisions that when I stand before God, I will give an account for. And sometimes it's difficult to understand which box our decisions go in. So how about this first one? How good you look. Is that my box or God, God's box? What do you think? Let me say my box. How good you look. It's not a trick question until you see this. How about you, how bad you smell? This is an easy one, right? How good you look. Okay, that's God's box. He determined that. How bad you smell? Shower. <laughs> Some of you singles, that's your application for today. Shower and shave my unibrow. <laughs> All right. How about this one? When you die. Who's in charge of that? God. That's his, his decision. Unless you erroneously commit suicide, which is a horrible decision, God's in control of when you die. You got cancer right now? He knows your days are numbered and he's in charge. Regardless if it's thousands of days or dozens of days, God determines the length of our lives. That's, that's God's box. But how you live, whose box is that? That's my box. The choices I make the seeds that I sow from the point that I'm capable of understanding my decisions, that's my box. Okay, these get a little bit more difficult as we go along. How about the outcome of your kids' lives? God's box or my box? Most of us who are parents, we, we got children, they're growing up, and, and there's that kind of anxiety. Some of you, they're in high school, and, and they're about to graduate from high school, and they're going to go out into the world. You're launching them out. Your box or God's box? The outcome of their lives, that's God's box. But your box is how you invest and train your children, how you love them. My two little boys who are five and three years old, I think about this all the time. Multiple conversations every day. This morning, they like to ride to church with me. They flip-flop who gets to go what week what, uh, and the other week. But today, I decided they could both come. And 
on the way to church, I'm telling both of them. I'm saying to my son Sammy, who's three years old, I said, Sammy, I was just at a conference last week, and there was this worship leader that was standing up on stage that reminded me of you. And I think one day, God just may use you to lead thousands of people into his presence and worship. And I believe that God's given you gifts and talents, and I believe he has great plans for your life. I'm investing, sowing seeds into their lives. That's my box. I'll stand accountable before God for that, how I invested. All right, how about this one? The bottom line of your bank account. Your box or God's box? I don't know. That's a trick one, isn't it? I believe that the bottom line of my bank account, that's God's responsibility. It's just like the size of our church. You know, somebody said to me one time, how big do you want South Bay Church to grow? How, how big are you going to let South Bay Church grow is what he said. I'm like, that's a freaking stupid question. God grows his church. Let's not get in his way and let him determine how big it, it grows. It's like that with our bank account. You don't control the bottom line of your bank account. God could take it away from you in a moment. And many people, millions of people saw that happen with the crash of stock market a few years ago. That's God's box. But you know what? How I invest and spend my money, whose box is that? That's my box. Those are my choices. When God gives me a paycheck, I'm a steward who's accountable before him for how I invest and spend what he's given to me and whether or not I trust him with my resources. So here's the solution, okay? The things that go in my box... Here's how I want to operate. I want to operate with wisdom and diligence with that which goes in my box. The way that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew. They would stand before God and spend eternity with him or eternity apart from him. What do you think is the wise thing to do in a split moment decision, even though you might have your hair singed a little bit, what's the wise thing to do when all of eternity stands in front of you? It's to bow to the one who's the creator, who's the God of the universe. They understand with wisdom and diligence that which is in my box, that's how I want to live and how I want to operate. But that which is in God's box, I need to step back and operate with faith and trust. That which is in God's box, faith and trust. That which is in my box, ultimately wisdom and diligence. Let me say it like this. I, a couple of you heard that I had surgery last week and people, everybody like, talked to multiple people and wanted to know, and had like lots of conversations. And I, like, I'm just not a very secretive person. I put my whole surgery detail on Facebook and let everybody read it. But my, you know, my wife's a little bit, she keeps me from doing dumb things like that. So somebody said to me, like, did you, did you have cancer? And you know, I'm like, no, I don't have cancer. But uh, so I had surgery this last week. And regardless of the point, I'll give you the Reader's Digest version of my surgery. So uh, we've been trying to have uh, another child. Biologically, we had Cademan, our son who's five, very quickly, and then uh, we started trying again about a year and a half after he was born, and we couldn't get pregnant. And so we felt like that was a part of God's sovereignty and leading us to, to adopt another child, but we, we believe that he, his desire is for us to have more biological kids. And so we started going to doctors and doing research and trying to figure out what the problem is. Bottom line, it's my fault. I'm the culprit of the fact that we can't get pregnant. And so the male doctor says to me, Andy, there's a small surgical procedure that we can do that in 70% of the cases fixes this problem, and um, there's a specific problem that it would fix, and uh, we can do this. And so immediately, I'm like, absolutely. I want a baby girl. I want enough of two boys. I need a little girl. God, God, I, 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 I'm begging you. And then there's this simple solution. I, I like 
jump at it. Well, the doctor's like, well, I want to take you through a few more procedures and kind of make sure that there's nothing else wrong. And I'm like, listen, do the surgery. Let's get it over with. And then finally, we put the surgery on the calendar and the surgery gets closer. And I haven't thought about the cost financially, what's going to happen to my body and anesthesia. And all of a sudden I realize it's going to be thousands of dollars. There's going to be a four inch incision in my, in my stomach and I'm not going to be able to walk for a few days, which is really bad for people like me. I just walk anyways, and it was bad. And then, so I find out about this, and then I realize, okay, I've got to do this. I've committed to it. It's the wise, diligent thing to do. I believe God's leading our family to do it. But then I started thinking, and I started doing research about anesthesia, and I'm looking up online what happens when you do anesthesia, and you're like basically dead for a while, and then they bring you back to life. It's not like the same thing as the resurrection of Jesus, but it's a resurrection. You're like back. And so I started thinking about this and I'm meditating on it over and over again. And we scheduled my surgery for the day after Easter, after I preached five times. And then I'm, and then I really started thinking about, okay, on Easter Sunday, we had five services and I preached my heart out and talked about Jesus' resurrection and the hope that he gives and eternity. And I'm like, what a great time to die. It seems so perfect. I'm going to, that's what's going to happen. I'm going to go in Monday morning, anesthesia. I'm so exhausted from preaching five times, and it's all over. So on Sunday night after Easter Sunday, I'm like going around hugging people, looking in their eyes, thinking, man, this might be the last time I hug this guy. What do I need to say to him? I love you, Archie. Thank you so much for leading us into God's presence every week. And I'm like going on and on. And I uh, I said to Stacy, should we complete our will and make sure that we got, not that we have anything to give away, but, you know, should we get that ironed out? So, long story made short, 2.30 a.m. on Monday morning, surgery scheduled for 7.30 that next morning. I wake up, and I have this horrible vertigo. I can't even, like, I go up to, the, to go to the bathroom, and I'm, like, tripping and falling, and I think, man, now I'm really going to die. I got vertigo, and so next morning, I go in, and we get there, and the doctor puts me in, uh, you know, you get in the bed, and the anesthesiologist comes in, and he's like, you shouldn't do the surgery if you have vertigo. And so I'm like, yeah, that's, that's a great idea. Let's not do that, because I don't want to die right now. Then I had four more days to think about it. So over and over again, I'm thinking about this surgery, and then I realize I got to preach on fear in a couple of weeks. How in the world am I going to deal with this subject when there's this fear inside of me? And I felt like God so, so clearly through that just whispered what, what I've sh- shared with you today, that there, there are some components of your life, Andy, that, that I'm in charge of, and you got to trust me. You got to let me be God and there are some areas where you're accountable for it, and you've got to be faithful and diligent. You've been faithful and diligent. This is a wise thing to do. This surgery, 70% of the time results in, in you getting better, and 0.0001% of the time anesthesia kills people. It's a wise decision to do. Make the freaking decision, and let me be God. Let me take care of the details of your life and handle the fear that you're facing. It's the same thing he's saying to you today, friends. There's that fear that's staring you down, and you feel like it's a battle between you and the fear, but it's not. It's a battle between God and the fear, and let God come in and be God and face that cancer, face that broken marriage, face that fear of not getting married, face that decision of going to college for those of you who are in high school, facing that fear. Let God be the one that faces the fear, and if you know the story, what happens Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the fiery furnace. Scripture says that the king looks up, and there in the fiery furnaces sees four figures. Three were thrown in, 
for in the fiery furnace. Because somehow God sent an angel or his presence enters into that furnace and carries these three men out. They come out, not a hair on their bodies is singed because our God is able. He's able. You know, the beauty of this is Jesus exemplifies this better than anybody else. In fact, in Matthew chapter 25, towards the end of Jesus' life, there's this moment of decision. And Jesus is making a decision about going to the cross. He's there on his knees before his father, and he's contemplating the fact that his hands and his feet are about to be nailed to a Roman cross, and that he'll be mocked and ridiculed and have a crown of thorns placed on his head. And in his moment of greatest struggle, I believe Jesus at that moment was wrestling through the consequences of this decision. He's able to look at the face of the cross and the place where he will be murdered brutally and say to his father, if there's any way, if there's any way that this can pass from me, please let it pass, but not my will, your will be done. He operated with obedience and faithfulness for the calling that the Father had placed on him to go to a cross, but at the same time, he trusted his Father, that his Father, who is the creator of the universe, that same Father that loves you and desires relationship with you, is capable. He's capable. He's been faithful. Generation upon generation upon generation, that which we entrust to him, he's faithful and able to care for it. And so Jesus says, Father, not my will, but your will be done. I have faith that you can resurrect me, Father. I have faith that you can redeem this situation. And ultimately, Jesus' obedience at this great moment of trial results in the salvation of men, women, boy, girl, rich, poor, young, and old from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And Jesus now ultimately stands is the bridge between humanity and the perfect Holy Father as a payment for our wrongdoings. And it's interesting how our accountability and God's faithfulness and our need to trust Him converge at this one moment. And it's, what will you do? Will you trust Him? Will you place your hope and faith in Him? You'll stand accountable before God for how you responded to the message of Christ, His death, burial and resurrection but faith has to take you there it's faith and trust and Jesus who was crucified and resurrected that is the hope of the world and God wants to restore hope to us today will you close your eyes and bow your heads with me for just a moment today can be a new beginning for you it can be a, a, a resurrection a resurrection of life a resurrection of hope and joy and peace, a resurrection of your marriage that's broken, a resurrection of hope and purpose in your relationship single, a resurrection of confidence for those of you who are students. It can be, it can be a resurrection day for you. God's knocking on the door of your heart and he wants to speak hope into your life today. He's able. He's able, friends. He's capable. He's been faithful. He's good. Romans chapter 8, verse 31 and 32 says so powerfully, If God is for us, who can stand against us? He who did not spare his only son, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? He's faithful today. He can care for you. He's able. He's for you. Will you trust him? Today, maybe that decision is to trust him with your life the first time. 
It's very, very simple. It's you acknowledging in your heart your need for a Savior, your brokenness before God, and to let Him step in and bridge the gap so a relationship between you and Him can begin. Today, that decision, that decision is the most important decision you'll ever make. Will you open up your heart to Him? Say a prayer in your heart, and it's not the prayer that brings salvation, it's the condition of your heart that goes something like this, God, I need you. God, I recognize my brokenness before you. Jesus, I believe that you were crucified, buried, and resurrection for my wrongdoings. You came back to life. Just tell him from your heart this morning, from the bottom of your heart. Now ask him for forgiveness. Ask him for forgiveness for that time that you cheated on your taxes or that time that you you were selfish with your spouse or that moment of anger on the way to church this morning. Tell him. Tell him you're sorry. Ask for his forgiveness. The scripture says that as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us when we place our faith in him. The Bible says, he says to us, their sins I'll remember no more. You can stand spotless and clean before God today. Just tell him. In just a moment, if you prayed that prayer and you're placing your hope and faith in Christ today, I want to give you an opportunity to be bold and to share that with us. But for the rest of us, I want you to face that fear this week. Do not fear. Do not be dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you with the righteous right hand that has created the universe. I will uphold you. It's for you today. God, thanks for the grace of the gospel. Thank you for the beauty of your love for us that you tell us do not be afraid. We place our hope in you. We place our trust in you. Every situation and circumstance, every fear in this room, we lay it at your throne today. You're good. You're great. You're capable. There's no one like you. And we place our trust in you today. In Jesus' name, we pray. Can we praise